uh, open us up in prayer as we get started this morning. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together here today. Thank you that we can gather once again as being another little meet last week. We uh, long to be back together with your church, with one another, and to, be, to share the joyful fellowship that comes from, uh, from being together in such a place. We thank you for the safety that you've provided for us during this time. Father, we thank you that we can come and week after week study your word, that we can listen and learn from what you have to say, and that we can, uh, that we can do so in a, a, an open way where we're not afraid, where we're not fearful that someone might be hostile toward us um, because we try to meet. Uh, Father, we do pray as we consider these matters that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to have wisdom in how our uh, theology affects our practice, that we would have clarity and understanding what the Bible says about the matters of government, and that we, would, uh, that we would wisely apply those truths in our own personal practice and in our practice as a church. And we pray that you would give us great insight in doing that. God, help us to, be, uh, to respond to one another in ways that are, are faithful, that are loving, that are gracious, kind, full of conviction and truth, and that are honoring and pleasing to you. And we pray that you would use this time to bring that about. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are back this morning talking once again about uh, government and the Christian life. And what we uh, began to talk about two weeks ago, and then were interrupted last week by the snow break, uh, was government and eschatology. Government and eschatology. I want to resume that this morning. When we talk about eschatology, we're talking about the study of last things, the doctrine of last things, things that are still to come. Uh, eschatology comes from a word that includes uh, the word, the Greek word for last or final or end times. And so that's what eschatology is. It's just that. It is the study of things that are to come or things that are in the future, things that are at the end. And this has a lot of impact upon the way that we interact with and view the government. So this is what I want to talk about uh, this morning is how those things actually play out in our lives. Before we do that, just a brief review, and we should have a chart here that uh, we went over last time. Again, just want to emphasize that this is uh, broad, general. This does not exactly represent every single person who holds to any of these views, but I presented to you four major views. You should be able to see them up there. I'm not sure if you can read them all from the distance that you're at, um, but the three basic uh, es uh, eschatological views people have would be premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial, and I've also added uh, a distinction among two premillennial groups or camps or theologies because it does make uh, quite a bit of difference in certain expectations about the future and in particular the way that people generally will play out their political convictions or their governmental convictions uh, if they fall into one of those different premillennial camps versus the other. So that's why we have four up here as well. And uh, I think as we talked about last time, just because somebody says that they are premillennial, they don't necessarily mean the same thing as you saying that you're premillennial or the other way around. So these four views, uh, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. You say, what is that about? They all have to do with something with regard to the millennium or in Revelation chapter 20, the account of a time period of a thousand years. A thousand years that is promised where Christ will reign on the earth. And this is stated Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6. Uh, and there are different views that people will take about what that, uh, what that prophecy means. What this 1,000 year reign of Christ means. 
Now, I would argue and ha- would argue very extensively and exhaustively till I'm blue in the face that this means a literal reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth after his return. And that this is what not only the straightforward meaning of Revelation 20 talks about, the context there, the order of things in the book of Revelation, and many Old Testament and New Testament prophecies leading up to that. But not everyone agrees with that position, and there are other views about what the millennium means. Um, Historic premillennialists would also say that that means a literal reign of Christ upon the earth. But as we talked about last week, that they would place a uh, lesser or maybe even non-existent emphasis upon the place of the nation of Israel during that time. Whereas a dispensational premillennialist would say, not only is Christ going to come reign for a thousand years on the earth before the eternal state kicks in, uh, but that also that's when all the promises to Israel about the land and their national blessing will be ultimately fulfilled after they respond to the Messiah and there will be a uh, geopolitical blessing given to the nation of Israel, which is currently unrepentant toward God. Uh, the historic premillennialists will place less emphasis on that, uh, maybe even none at all, might even say that the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore kind of being in Christ by union with him by faith really gets you all of those blessings in a spiritual sense and you don't have really much of anything to worry about as far as the needing to fulfill those any further uh, for Israel to receive those promises because they would say, again, many of them, that Christ is the true Israel. And so being in him is how you get those promises, not through some uh, geopolitical fulfillment. I would argue to some degree there is a both and to that. Uh, would not agree as far as they go with saying that Christ is the true Israel and the fulfillment of all of those things. But nonetheless, uh, there is some truth in Jesus being spoken of in the way as the one where all the promises are fulfilled in him. And yet there are specific details yet to come that I would argue that only dispensationalism accounts for. Okay, so these are things, these are views that would say that there is still a thousand year reign of Christ yet to come in the future after he returns. The other views, amillennialism and postmillennialism would not say that. The amillennial view would say basically that there is no literal 1000 year period, that we are now in that kingdom of Christ's reign and that the, the way that he reigns on uh, here and now is through the church that he, the kingdom is basically tantamount to the church, that when you're in the church, then you're in the kingdom. And so you are under the reign of Christ in that way. Now, there is a larger reign of Christ, if you will, over all things, and there is a functional reign of Christ that he's going to bring about, they would say, uh, when he returns and just immediately ushers in an eternal state that is different than now, no 1,000-year period in between just He's, there's the age here, and then there is the time when Christ comes, and he's going to physically restore all things at that time. But they would say there's no, uh, there's no future fulfillment for a, a nation state of Israel in a geopolitical sense, and that we are not looking for that physical kingdom in this world at all in any way, even after he returns. Instead, we have a spiritual kingdom here and now, and then there is a kingdom that is universal that is yet to come once Christ returns. That would be the amillennial view in essence. And then just to review the post-millennial view, post would mean saying Christ returns post after the millennium, meaning that we are kind of in the time now where Christ's kingdom is growing and spreading and that the influence of the gospel is to take root and to spread throughout the nations as the church uh, is sort of the fulfillment of the kingdom as it grows and grows and grows during this time. Uh, It's similar 
to amillennialism in the sense that they would not say that Christ comes back and then sets up a thousand years. Uh, but it is different in that it places a higher value upon the things that are going on in this world here and now. The earthly institutions and kind of not only an expectation but sometimes uh, a little bit more of an obligation to do something about that in these earthly institutions here and now, whether government or schools or culture or what have you. And that'll vary person to person among the post-millennial camp. But the idea is basically, no, we're not just in a spiritual kingdom. Nations matter. The, this earth and this world matters. It's just that they see it here and now as opposed to a dispensational premillennial would see it on the other side of Jesus coming. So when Jesus returns, we would think and we would teach as part of our church's doctrine that Christ is going to do all of that kind of stuff once he returns and that he does care about the nations and he is going to fulfill these promises to Israel and he is going to bring in his kingdom. Uh, the post-millennialists would say, no, we are kind of involved in bringing that about here and now. And that is building and that's when the time when Jesus is going to be doing those things. And we don't wait for that to come and just kind of leave that all to him. But we are his agents here and now to sort of bring that about. Um, so those are some of the distinctions functionally. And you can see in the chart anything here about with regard to Israel and so on. If you want more, um, more detail and to walk through that, you can get the recording from a couple of weeks ago. And I'm glad to answer any questions that you may have after you, uh, after you go through that. Uh, for this morning, what I want to do is just to pick up on that and to think about this. How does eschatology influence your views on culture, government, society, and so on, and interacting in the world? If you hold one of these positions, how does that impact uh, your particular view? Now, is there any way where you guys have seen this? I just want to throw this out there because I'm going to walk through each, each position and give you some ways that I have either seen this or some potential, uh, some potential pitfalls that we might have if we hold to any of these views. But uh, where have you seen eschatology, that someone has held an eschatology, a view of the end times or a view of where we're at here and now with regard to the kingdom? How has that impacted their particular actions in the world toward government and so on? Yeah, right. Okay, so yeah, so you've seen a, a post-millennial effort to Christianize, sort of Christianize society or to bring in Christian laws and, and so on. Yeah, yep. Okay, good, good example. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so premillennials can often look at, uh, yeah, this event is happening. Is this the beginning of the future stuff that's coming? Is this, is this Antichrist? Is that Antichrist? Is this the return to the land that's spoken of in the Bible? Uh, there's, there's a lot of, and I think one of the, the dangers can be a, what we might call a newspaper theology where we're, it's not just that we see a very obvious thing predicted in Scripture, but that we're constantly combing through every possible detail to find out what exactly, uh, well, maybe this is it, and maybe this is it, and maybe this is it. So, yes, uh, that can be one way where it, that gets our attention. Yeah, Mark?
Okay, so you'd see it taking into your own hands rather than trusting God to do something that he's said that he would do. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, good, Patrick. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good warning and a good recognition. So yeah, if you, if you are of this view that things are not, okay, so from a, a, maybe a dispensational perspective, things are not necessarily going to get better, which actually the amillennial view would hold as well, uh, functionally speaking, that things are not necessarily going to get better. Um, there, can be a, there can be kind of a hopelessness that comes, and uh, what's the point of doing that? What's the point of being involved in, in anything to do with this and then just backing out. And I think that's a, that's a real thing that we actually have to answer from the scriptures and say, why wouldn't we just do that? You know, if, if, there, if these things are corrupt until Christ returns, then is there any value? How do we respond to that and what do we do? And I want to talk about that. And I, I'm hoping to get to that this morning, but um, we will as part of this unit on government and eschatology. Uh, we will talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, good. Anything else? Maybe where, yeah, personal views where they, have, they affect you one way or another? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, so the coming tribulation is, uh, yes, something that should drive us to that and wanting to make sure people, uh, yeah, make sure that people would escape from that, yeah, by virtue of being believers in Christ. Yeah, so that would be a distinctive of a dispensational view, and in particular, a, a uh, pre-tribulational, uh, and, and to some degree, a pre-wrath, uh, rapture view as well. But as I mentioned last time, that's an um, additional issue to the millennial view. Good. What else? Anything else? Ways where you see this impact you or the practice of other people, other Christians. Yes, absolutely. There are, this, there, that's a very big issue. How should the government, how should our government relate to the nation of, of Israel in terms of foreign policy? Yep, that's right. That's, and well, that's one of those things where people simply often go straight to the action and they kind of don't make sure that they're actually on the same page about what should be biblically the way that we think about and interact with the modern nation state of Israel. Uh, how should we think about that in terms of the Bible, including our eschatology? So, uh, yeah, these are all good, these are all good points um, and good examples. I want to just talk through a few, a few of these things, and I'm going to have a particular focus on the uh, post-millennial view and the pre-millennial view. And just to emphasize again, um, our doctrinal stance here as far as what we teach at our church is decidedly futuristic pre-millennial, meaning that we would teach there is a thousand years coming on the earth where Christ reigns after he returns, 
and that that thousand year period will be the time when the nation of Israel is restored to all the things that the Old Testament promised that have yet never happened and that there are a lot of specifics in the Old Testament that still have to come to pass and the New Testament that have to come to pass regarding Israel and that God keeps his promises uh, that there is a remnant of Israel that believes now at this time but that that is not the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel that there is coming a time instead when they will believe in mass and not only will they believe in mass but that there will be a national like a geopolitical actual entity of them as a nation as uh, a key player and really uh, in essence the focal point of the earth as far as that stuff goes when Christ is reigning from among them in the future so he will reign on the throne of David uh, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron the nations will flock to Jerusalem Isaiah chapter 2 talks about this they will they will go to the mountain of the hill of the Lord in the last days they'll seek wisdom from Christ um, Israel will be a blessing in the midst of the earth all of those things so this is what we teach this is what we believe the Bible is very clear about um, I understand that that is not everybody's view and certainly not every Christian's view, but we would argue very strongly for that and think that that's important. And um, hopefully you'll see that when you have certain eschatological convictions, it's going to push you in certain directions functionally, like in terms of government and, pol and politics and culture and things like that, to where when people say that eschatology doesn't matter that much, um, well, maybe relative to whether or not you believe the gospel, it doesn't matter that much directly, which is true, but at the same time, it does have ramifications. And the, what you think about the future and what you think about where we are now with regard to the kingdom is going to, at a minimum, is going to push you a certain direction and it may even be a very strong controlling influence upon the way that you interact with other people and institutions in the world so what you believe about this stuff will have an impact on how you spend your time how you live your life what your expectations are what you're praying for who you're working with and so on so I would, I would encourage you that uh, there are many reasons including this one why your eschatology does matter and I'd encourage you to um, to make sure that you are working toward understanding what the Bible says on that and I would strongly commend to you a dispensational perspective which would be just simply at a at a basic level Jesus is coming again he'll bring in his kingdom for a thousand years once he returns and he will fulfill all the promises to Israel at that time um, so with regard to this just a, a couple of things as far as the way that our these things impact our view of government um, amillennialism would state that there is a way in which Christ rules here and now but that is basically through the kingdom uh, through in the kingdom through the church so they would say you know this is the church um, certainly that's not the full extent of how Christ reigns but basically in this age what we are to concern ourselves with is this is his kingdom like we are to build what he's doing in the world through the church and largely speaking I think that uh, premillennialists could affirm that functionally in a lot of ways uh, but there is an emphasis then on the gospel and the church um, they would say that Israel equals the church and that we are basically the same entity as what went before Christ and the, the people of Israel that that has now just been fulfilled or continued in the church um, that's an oversimplification but it's the gist of it and so there is no need to sympathize with or to really worry about any kind of future for or even um, necessarily um, a, a sympathy for the modern state of Israel there's just that that is all kind of 
Um, that, that's all kind of over and not really anything to worry about. Now, some of them would say that uh, they would uh, affirm the passages in the Bible that speak of a time in the future when the, the Old Testament has promised um, a great mass repentance of Jews. And they would even acknowledge that, even if they would say there's no political future for them that the Bible talks about or that the Bible remains to fulfill. But uh, largely the emphasis is going to be the church, the gospel, and so on. And many would say among that group as well that therefore, because this is Christ's sphere on earth, that everyone else kind of needs to stay out of this. The government isn't supposed to impose upon that. Uh, it's, it's not supposed to be messed with. Like that's the realm of Caesar, but this is the realm of the church and we are supposed to protect that. And that's, that's God's territory. That's where Christ is actively reigning in this world here and now. So that would be the um, kind of the, the very basics of the amillennial view. You can see where that's going to lead to not a lot of compulsion to go and to get involved in politics, government, and so on. Although that doesn't prevent people who have that view from doing that. But there's not going to be a lot of theological conviction of we've got to do this because, hey, we got to bring in the kingdom when they think that bringing in the kingdom means doing the work of the gospel through the church. So the amillennial view is not one that necessarily calls for a large cultural involvement other than to preach the gospel and to, um, and to build the church and then to carry out any degree of good deeds that they think is biblical. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to premillennialism as well. Um, historic premillennialism, uh, I've honestly had a hard time finding much about this explicitly with regard to political, governmental, cultural, things like that. Um, much of the eschatology, as I mentioned, is similar to the um, amillennial view, where except for the fact that they can't get past Revelation 20, which says a thousand years after Christ comes. But besides that, it's kind of like uh, amillennialism in a lot of ways, uh, with, but with a thousand years tacked on to the end where Christ is going to reign, but not a lot of emphasis on nations or, or things like that. Uh, so it's, it's going to functionally be pretty similar in terms of um, cultural impact or cultural uh, mandates. And you will functionally find a lot of sympathy between people who are in the amillennial camp and in the historic premillennial camp in terms of what they say about engaging in the culture and so on. Their eschatology does not explicitly demand them to go out and to try to build institutions in the same way as maybe something else would. Uh, so those two views functionally share a lot, even though they have very different things to say about will there be a 1,000 years after Jesus returns or not. Okay, um, I want to then move to talking about the two others and spend a little bit more time here. I want to talk about, first of all, post-millennialism. And this is, uh, it's a growingly popular eschatology in our own country over really the last, just the last few years. Many of you are familiar with this. You are, um, you have, maybe you are sympathetic to this or you would even hold to this view. Um, some of the, the viewpoints on this would include things like this, like Christ is Lord over the nations, uh, he is Lord over the nations. Now, I think everybody would agree with that in one sense. Jesus Christ says in Matthew 28 that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So he has all authority on heaven and earth. Um, where that goes from there then is maybe a different story because uh, you can take that and say, okay, Jesus, what does that mean? Or you can extrapolate from that, well, he's Lord over the nations and therefore his lordship looks like X, Y, and Z. Now, I would argue that one of the ways where the post-millennial view fails is that it does, uh, it, it 
overdoes the way in which it would then sort of take that idea of lordship and apply it. And basically it becomes a blank check to say that this must be done or this could be done in any institution, any setting. Because, hey, if Christ is Lord of everything, then shouldn't that institution be subject to him? And if that institution should be subject to him, then shouldn't we as Christians be involved in making sure that that happens? That is kind of the perspective. Christ is Lord over the nations, therefore uh, his lordship must be followed. Therefore, if it's not happening, we should be trying to bring it about. And I would argue that that does not logically follow, that that is not a logical deduction from that actual first starting point of Christ's lordship over all things. There, Christ is Lord over all things, but he gives specific instructions about what we are to do with that. Um, now again, the post-millennial view would go to Matthew 28, and say, uh, well, yeah, he does give instructions about this. In fact, what he says is, and you can look there with me if you want, but the Great Commission you're probably familiar with, he says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And there will be many from this perspective who would say, well, look at this. Jesus is not saying uh, what you think he says. He is saying you are to disciple the nations as entities themselves. He's not talking about an individual mandate here. He is saying you're supposed to take these nations and teach them. Now, I have a hard time with that in a lot of different ways, uh, one of which is that that's not the way that the apostles actually functioned when they actually went out and obeyed this command. They went and they preached the gospel to whoever that they could, but there was no effort at all uh, that you note in the entire New Testament to try to do anything on a national level. They went to the Gentiles, preached to whoever they could, and then whoever believed was added to the church. There was no institutional change whatsoever that was that was fought for, that was uh, striven for, that was called for among the apostolic mission. But in addition to this, you're going to have a hard time baptizing entire nations. And this is going to speak instead of a making disciples that come from these nations. These nations are the target, but it is not the nations as such in terms of the actual nation state, the way that we think about this, but rather it is discipling the Gentiles. We are supposed to go and to make disciples of Gentiles, of all the world, not just Israel, but also everyone, all the people who are out there. So this is the call, and this is what you see modeled over and over again in response to this in the New Testament epistles. This is what you see in the book of Acts. This is the call over and over and over and over again. It is to go and it is to preach the gospel and it is to make this happen. Um, so this is the church's responsibility. It is not to go and to change nations as such, although there could be that impact at times as large numbers of people believe and do certain things. But it is rather that you are to go and you are to preach the gospel and you are to work as the church is told to do to bring people to faith in Christ and to bring them to, the, to a greater knowledge of Christ and a growth in godliness uh, in him. So this, these are some of the, the basic perspectives. There is an idea with post-millennialism that, um, that is basically uh, what they would call optimistic, where they're saying, this is what I am going to, like the, the, um, there, there's an expectation that the gospel is going to work, that people are going to grow and change, that people are going to, uh, that they're going to respond to the gospel and that that is going to have a, sort of a positive leavening impact upon society. Uh, there are some who would maybe say that you need to be more, uh, more aggressively 
coercive in bringing these things about. That is one, uh, one sort of side of the spectrum of this view. And you would, that would lead all the way toward uh, actual culture war, even military takeover, political takeover. We need to be fighting to do this and we need to make sure that we are the people in charge and that the laws al- align exactly with this and we need to do everything we can from a force perspective to bring this about. There are some who would go that way. That's not the universal view uh, among people who would hold this post-millennial conviction. Others just simply think that preaching the gospel will lead to people changing, which will lead to cultural and institutional change because people should be involved in those things and there's just kind of an optimism and an expectation that things will get better on that front and that the kingdom will grow through that so there's kind of that spectrum of uh, of well we just do what the bible says and we have the anticipation that things will get better versus we are going to do everything literally in our power to make sure that things change and that they align with people keeping the commandments of god Uh, now i have a lot of responses to this but um One of them would be simply this, that there is no promise of an increase of responsiveness, uh, relatively speaking, throughout the course of the time between now and when Christ returns. There's no like chart of here's the sort of upward graph of this is where things are going as far as the influence of the kingdom or the church or anything like that. Um, Not only that, but the presence of Uh, the Antichrist and Daniel's 70th week right before the return of Christ is a major obstacle to this view, which is that at the very end of things before Christ returns, there are going to be, uh, there's going to be some really, really terrible things going on in the world. It doesn't mean that will be the case exactly until that point, but it does mean that at that point, there will be something much, much worse than what is going on right now. So this is an obstacle to this view as well. Um, so no expectation of that, no promise of an increase of this necessarily happening. And in fact, this problem of, well, there's going to be something really bad that happens before Christ returns. Um, there is an emphasis I, I mentioned, I think, uh, last time that the post-millennial uh, emphasis on the importance of uh, what God does in this actual world and in this, uh, in this place where the, the people who are here and the nations that exist, and they don't just want to throw all of that out the way that someone would do if maybe they're of an amillennial persuasion. Uh, I think that that is a good point of this view. And it's something that premillennialists ought to be able to share because when Jesus returns, he does rule over nations. He rules over people and he rules over nations. And um, God is concerned with this fallen world that has been cursed, as Romans 8 says, of restoring it. The, 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 uh, the universe even cries out for a restoration to the time when things are not under the curse anymore. So I, I do think that there is a place for saying, look, we're not just going to throw out and say that nothing matters as concerns institutions, people, and so on. The issue is, when is Jesus going to change that? And who does that work? Is it us here and now as his agents or is it him in the future when he actually will, as I would argue, succeed in doing that and actually bring that about on a heart level and in a real, real level, even for those who wouldn't necessarily believe the gospel at that time, who are in that kingdom as unbelievers uh, before the eternal state comes. And yet he would be reigning over them functionally in a way where they simply do not submit to him now. So there's, I, I, there's a big difference on that point. But 
there is a unity of, uh, between post-millennial and pre-millennial when you are holding to these things biblically that, yeah, this, we're not just throwing out this world as if the physical things going on in this world have absolutely no importance to God or the institutions have no importance to God. It isn't that way. Uh, it's just the way that they then go about responding to that and the place that that falls within their theology is not something that I could agree with. Uh, so these are just some things about post-millennialism. Now, can you think about how that would impact your politics besides what we have mentioned already or your response to government or the way that you think about getting involved in government and societal institutions and culture if you hold two of you like this what is going to be your general tendency how would this impact how have you seen this impact yeah daniel Yeah, so more eager to convince people to, of that, of the need to act in those certain ways. You're saying, yeah, uh, with regard to government. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, because you got to see that change, right? So this is where our effort is going to go here to some degree. Yes. What else? How might this impact? It's tough. You got to think about it, right? Um, this, I'm going to take the other side from what Patrick mentioned earlier. If you have expectations that things are going to get better, if you're kind of optimistic that this thing can change, is that going to nudge you in a certain direction? Like, yeah, if, if I'm building towards something and this is building toward getting better and better, then maybe I do want to get involved in this. It's just going to pull you that way a little bit more. So certainly there is that. Um, if you think that there's an obligation of Christians to change nations, then that will likely make you more concerned about government that will make you more concerned about getting the right people involved now this is not to say that you shouldn't want the right people involved we talked about this uh, in an earlier section where uh, we see the blessings of a ruler who rules in the fear of God we see the blessings of having righteous leadership and there is that blessing for sure and I'll talk about that more how to make sure that we don't fall um, fail, how we don't fail to actually remember that and care about that but uh, you're going to have this desire to really make sure that things are going right in that sphere. And it is going to make you desire to make things change on that level. Now, some of you are saying, I don't believe in post-millennialism at all, and I worry about government all the time. Well, we'll talk about that too, because um, maybe you should let your theology uh, determine a little bit more what you believe about things and what you spend your time on. But that's, a, that's to come here in a few minutes. Um, yeah, if you have these expectations that things are going to get better, then you're going to be more inclined to go toward this. If you have the, ne the biblical understanding and the conviction that people need to be following, um, not only that it's not only what Christians do from the heart that matters, but even what other people do outside of that, that nations should follow after God as a whole in this way, and that this should be building and building in submission to Christ, then that's going to influence you toward action in a certain kind of way. Uh, I want to come back around in a little bit and talk a little more about um, some what I see as some um, cautions with regard to this view. But um, I want to move and talk for a few minutes about dispensationalism and how that might impact your political and governmental involvement as well. Um, so typically with, when it comes to dispensational premillennialism, again, we're talking about 
Um, no promise of a kingdom building or anything here and now. Um, there is an expectation that people will believe the gospel, that the, there will, will be a church, but no promise of ups or downs necessarily one way or another. No promise of changing institutions before Christ returns, but that he will do this. And then there's a view that the last time before Christ comes is going to be the worst time on earth. So there's no expectation that we'll succeed in turning every last person or institution to Christ before he comes and that at some point things are going to get worse. Now one of the things that uh, with regard to expectations of dispensationalists and I hear this all the time and I want to I think it's important that we don't say this and I want to encourage you not to say this. Um, We say well there's one phrase that might be okay but then we take farther from that and I don't think we should. So you might hear the phrase very often things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay, have you heard that phrase before? Have you said that phrase before? They're going to get worse before they get better. Now, when it comes to a future tribulation before Jesus returns, that's very true. They're going to get worse before Jesus returns. Like they're going to get worse before everything is made right. But I would argue that the Bible doesn't promise that things will get progressively worse from our own time in history until Antichrist returns that there is no promise of that in every sense. There is a general promise that false teaching will spread and and become more and more multiplied. 2 Timothy 3 says that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So on a spiritual level, certainly there's going to be always more and more false religion growing, and they don't really go away, false religions. They just kind of stay and morph, and then they add, and they spread and mix and So it's not like that's going to get any better. Uh, But when we talk about circumstances and so on, I think it's hard to argue that on a lot of levels that life in many ways is not better right now than it is in some places and sometimes since Christ was around. Uh, I think most of you probably would not be willingly transported to another period in the last 2,000 years and another uh, another place in history if you could uh, if you could avoid it. We we recognize that there are certain things that are better. We also know that um, you know living in our own country here and now. Um, or at various points in its history is probably more favorable toward Christianity than, say, living in Rome in the first century because there was a lot of hostility there. So there are things like that where I think we just need to be cautious about saying there is absolutely a downhill, complete fall from wherever you start the clock toward the time when Jesus comes. It, it isn't just that linear and it isn't that comprehensive. So if you're, if you're going to say, well, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse, and that's the way that things go in this world, I just don't think the Bible tells us that. Uh, but it does talk about the reality that things will not ultimately change until Jesus comes and makes them right. So if you are trying to change the world in a way where, yes, we're going to bring everything into conformity to Christ and we're going to have success in making this world the kind of place the Bible talks about when it talks about the kingdom of God, uh, I, would, I want to uh, dissuade you of that conviction. I don't want you to think, no, I'm going to be able to do this or we're going to be able to do this. Now, just because you're not able to do that on a grand scale doesn't mean that you shouldn't take individual actions that are righteous. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But uh, we just need to have proper expectations. Uh, We don't think, we shouldn't think that things will just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse in every single possible way. We need to just understand what the Bible says about things getting worse before they get better and not take it beyond that. Um, Just one more caution with that is it can lead to a kind of pessimism about anything um, you know, again, Patrick, not to pick on you, but you mentioned it earlier. Just we can we can all do. This. I think many of you can sympathize with this. Like, what is the point? 
What is the point of doing this? What's the point of trying to, what's the point of, um, you know, making this kind of change or trying to do something with regard to this law or trying to make this righteous thing happen or, uh, or changing this, whether it's a um, you know, government agency or a school thing or whatever. What's the point of doing this when it's all just going to, it's all just going to burn. It's all just going to, uh, you know, to, to go away anyway, and we're not going to have any success. Well, that's not really supposed to be the measure of why we do something or not. Why we're supposed to do it or not has to do with what does the Bible actually tell us to do? And what does the Bible commend to us? And we don't say, well, this is not going to have any lasting impact 500 years from now in terms of an institution. Therefore, we shouldn't even do anything to do with that at all. That's not what the Bible tells us either. Uh, but we should, as I'll mention in a moment, exercise wisdom and make sure that we understand and are realistic about the possible impact and the lasting of the things that we do. Okay, um, so expectations, we need to make sure that we have them properly set um, and dispensationalism expectations can be, uh, they can be too pessimistic if we're not careful. Um, priorities, priorities of dispensationalists would generally say if Christ is going to rule the nations himself, then why bother trying to reclaim them as institutions? And I would say that that's generally a good way to think about it, that if you, if you understand that there is no promise of this happening until then, if you understand that one day they will all be in the hands of Antichrist before Christ returns, then yes, there's probably not a lot of point saying I'm going to build this thing that is going to last forever. Uh, but this can very often be overdone and we can simply completely withdraw or reject things that have to do with culture or government because of a resignation to them all being destroyed anyway. But you don't do that in other areas of life. Like you don't say, well, my body's going to be destroyed destroyed anyway, so I'm not brushing my teeth this morning. You don't say, well, you know, this, this person may or may not live until Christ returns, so I'm not going to help them to get their life together, and I'm not going to help them with their, uh, with their health need or something. You don't think about it in that way. And so instead of that, it really needs to be a matter of prioritization and judgment and saying, well, okay, um, I am going to make sure that I am doing the kind of good to other people and taking the kind of activities that scripture promotes. And that prioritizes making sure that they know the gospel and end up in the kingdom of God in heaven. And along the way, we're also told on many places, even as, as believers, even in the New Testament, recognizing all this stuff is true, that we're supposed to care for other people and, and meet needs and so on. So we don't just throw out anything that doesn't seem permanent or spiritual uh, just because it doesn't seem like that institution or that thing that's on earth will last until eternity. Uh, we say, what does the Bible actually tell us that we should be doing, prioritizing, and what does it commend as good works? And then we go and we do that. We don't just blanketly pull back from everything that, uh, that could be perceived as earthly in any way just because we say, well, it's not going to last. So that would be another thing, would be priorities. We need to keep those properly in line. We need to be driven by priorities, not just to one way or another, just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, another viewpoint of dispensationalism is with regard to Israel, as Daniel mentioned earlier. And there is a recognition that God has not forsaken his promises and that one day he will restore them. Um, there is a danger here to this, and probably many of you already are aware of this, but there is a danger. And the danger um, would be, well, there are a lot of them, but one of them would be unqualified support of the nation state of Israel, the modern nation state of Israel, on the basis of uh, what the Bible says about God's promises to them. In other words, just because they 
do something as a nation doesn't mean that God is pleased by it. And it doesn't mean that you individually or that the United States should support or encourage that. They actually are capable of doing things that are wrong. And that, I know, to many people, especially um, to more recent dispensationalists, is almost blasphemy to say, to say that there might be anything other than complete and total universal or complete and total unqualified support for what Israel does, whether in a military sense or otherwise. But we do need to recognize that they are not a perfectly righteous nation by any means. We need to recognize that they can not only make mistakes, but also do things that are sinful, that they can do things on a governmental level that God would not be pleased by, and that the people there are, um, that the nation is largely, mostly unrepentant toward God, has not responded to their Messiah. This is part of why that, the, that Christ is still uh, not here, is because there is a, a union of the return of Christ with the repentance of the nation, and those two things go together. And when he's not here, this is an indication. This nation is not, uh, not pleasing to him. They have rejected him. So we need to keep these things in mind, and there is, um, there's a way then that we can overdo support. Uh, we should recognize what Genesis 12 says, that if we curse the seed of Abraham, then God will curse us. If we bless them, God will bless us. But blessing them doesn't mean unqualified support. Even God himself sent Israel into exile. And read about the things that he let happen to them and the discipline that he brought upon them. And uh, it's, it's pretty rough stuff. So we don't just have to say everything that they do is fine. Uh, and there can be a tendency among dispensationalists to basically say, well, is Israel doing something in the world, interacting with other nations? Well, they must be right because they're Israel. And that's not the way it works. Now, I, I just want to back up and say that many times they are doing what is right or they're defending themselves or whatever it might be. And I'm not um, an expert enough on Middle Eastern uh, government and politics to be able to tell you with any uh, great level of confidence what specific actions um, are involved in almost anything to do with that. But I would just say, just be cautious that you don't immediately say, this nation is God's chosen nation, therefore they must be doing what's right. Even the Bible does not talk about that at any point in time. God is always willing to call them out when they're doing something wrong. Um, okay, so when we, um, when we talk about dispensationalism, one of the charges against this is that, um, especially from the post-millennialists, is it, that it leads to pessimism and escapism. Okay, like we just want to get out of this world. And we just don't want anything to do with these things. And we don't want anything to do with these societies. And we just want to kind of go do our own Christian thing and not have anything to do with this world that God cares about. So let me ask you, how would you respond if someone said that? First of all, would any of you say, yeah, that's true. I actually wrongly do that. Maybe you would. Yeah, right. Okay.
Yeah, those, those are a couple of great points. I mean, one, yes, Paul recognized he, he did, we do want to escape. That's okay to want to no longer be in this fallen world and this fallen body. Right? I, it is better to depart and be with Christ. So yes, it is, it is ideal to not be in the midst of a fallen world. And we should actually want that, uh, want that to be the case. But then it's instructive what he, what he does by staying here. I know that I will continue, remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul said, I want to stay here because I want the gospel to go forth. So he did have that priority. Um, but yeah, and I, I want to mention that just because you, you said, uh, we can go ahead and, and talk about this. I, I do think that one of the appeals of um, the post-millennial position, now this is not why everybody who believes it believes it. I think that there are many people who come to this conclusion, um, honestly, if you will, but when you see the world changing around you and when it's kind of scary, um, sometimes the response to that might be, well, you know, there's an escapism that says I'm going to create my own separate Christian community and I'm going to have Christian employees that I work for and our employers that I work for. and I'm going to have all Christians in my little neighborhood and then I'm going to run like I'm going to have my own stuff and pull out of the world and have nothing to do with it that way. But then there is. I think a similar heart that can be behind the desire to transform the world, which is, I also don't like living among these ungodly people, but rather than run away, I'm going to fight. It's the same drive. It's the same, I don't want to be part of this. I don't like where this is going. But it parades as we're doing kingdom work. So we can change the culture and we can change the world and we can do these things. And that's for Christ. So we're going to win the schools and we're going to win the government and we're going to win the institutions and we're going to bring those under the reign of Christ. But I think that a lot of it can very easily be driven by, you know, I don't like what the government is doing to me. I don't like that it's uncomfortable that now at work I have to have these interactions with people that are um, going to make me take a moral stand on something that's very uncomfortable. Now, that's difficult. I understand why we would want to escape from that. But when others are accused of, of escapism, um, I think it's also good to, make a, to take a good look at, well, is it, um, is it any different to just try to change everyone else around you? Is that any kind of a different thing? Um, yeah, somebody, uh, Kaylee. Yeah, and it's going to drive your priorities, right? What are, you trying, what are you trying to accomplish, right? If you understand that your future is heavenly, that your earth is not, your life is not going to be here forever, then you're going to, it's going to change the way that you act. Yeah. Um, let me go through a couple of things. Um, so uh, how, would we, how would we make the case that, uh, that we are not escapists or pessimists or just being driven by this if we hold to a premillennial position. If we think Christ's kingdom is not here and now, but that it is coming and he's going to bring that, um, how do we 
then interact in this, in this world. How do we interact in this world? Well, Kaylee's already mentioned one of these things, which is we're preaching the gospel. This is what we're going to do. So this is the baseline. Um, beyond that, what, is there any biblical instruction for us about what is the value of doing things beyond just literally walking around preach the gospel all the time? Well, I just want to go through a few things quickly. And I think that, I think I have a slide for this. Um, it's, uh, yeah, case for non-escapism. Um, biblical command, let us do good to all men. Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, what that good consists of is going to be driven by scripture. But there is that. There is a statement of just let us do good to all men. So we don't say, well, there's, you know, we're, uh, nothing's going to last in this life. And so, hey, I know that, um, I know you need help, like, you know, uh, fixing your mailbox. But, like, is that going to make a difference in going to heaven or not? Like, no, you help your neighbor with your mailbox, right? Those kinds of things. Let us do good to all men. Um, the reality of living in the world um, that 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10 says, in essence, it's impossible to go out of the world and to, or to escape from interacting with unbelievers. So how are you going to do this? Uh, even if they haven't, if you're not preaching the gospel to them at that moment, there's a way in which you've got to interact with them. How are you going to go about doing this? So you need to think about that. How do I treat them? And there are, there are ways the Bible describes about how to do that and how to interact with them. And that matters to God. Um, seeking godly leaders matters. Uh, how we go about it, we may differ in terms of what effort we put in or even who we think is a godly leader. But 2 Samuel 23 is clear that it's a blessing to people when someone rules in the fear of God. So it's okay for that to take place even in a fallen world. Uh, we should care about righteousness. We should care about righteousness. Uh, 2 Peter 2.8, Lot was provoked when he was in Sodom by the sin that he saw around him. We should care about that. We can't just say, well, that doesn't matter. I'm hardening my heart to that. But when that's going on around him, there's a baseline of, of being provoked and of, of not being happy about this. So when you look around and you say, hey, it's, there's injustice going on. There's corruption. There's a lack of punishment of crimes. There's exoneration of, of the guilty. Um, there is uh, people that are not being kept safe who are supposed to be and people who should not be uh, protected, who are being protected. When you see that kind of thing going on, you don't have to be happy about that. And if you're in a position or in a spot where that's within your sphere to be able to do something about that without compromising other things biblically, then that's something that, hey, maybe I can do something about this. Um, and then there's obviously all the other matters about caring about everyday life. But this gets, this gets pretty vague and tricky. But let's just say, for example, how many of you, if you could would prefer that um, Knox County had many more um, salt and plow trucks on hand as of two weeks ago. Would you, would you like that? Well, okay, that's easy to say at a vacuum, isn't it? Do you know what they cost? I don't know what they cost. What would they have to drop in order to do that? What taxes would they have to raise in order to do that? But in and of itself, it would be nice if there are a lot more plows going around and clearing all the neighborhood roads. Uh, that's something that impacts your daily life. It's okay to care about that. What degree of importance do you place upon that? That's another matter. But um, we'll talk about one more thing with that here in a second. But then, of course, opportunities for the gospel. If we're looking to preach the gospel, if we're willing to pray for peace, if we're told to pray for peace in 1 Timothy 2, if we're supposed to pray for open doors and opportunities for the gospel, um, then we could at least care that maybe the gospel is not quite so um, Opposed That if we have the opportunity to have leaders or laws or institutions that would allow for that, it's not that we should be apathetic about that and say none of that matters. Even 
Paul in going through um, the book of Acts used, although we don't see him trying to influence the laws themselves, but we do see how he used the legal protections that he had to make the church a little bit safer from persecution and even to find an audience with Caesar as he appealed to Caesar and was able to preach the gospel to the succession of Roman rulers. So there is uh, the idea of taking advantage of that, even if we're not mandated to necessarily do anything to change that. We, we, could, we can at least, okay, what can we do that gives us opportunities for the gospel? All right, let me give you um, just one, one more thing here. Um, and I have to find it, sorry. Um, yes, so rather than a radical escapism, or just throwing ourselves all in and saying, well, the world matters, so we're going to go all in on changing this world. Uh, a better solution would be to practice wisdom. It would be to practice wisdom. And I want to talk about this in more expansive detail um, going forward when we talk about voting and kind of political involvement. But I just want you to consider that you should be mindful at all times what your activity in this present age uh, and these institutions, what is it for? What is the purpose of what you're doing? What are you trying to accomplish by those? Um, you should be driven by how your activity impacts the gospel and how it expresses obedience to the commands that God has given to you to do good. And um, there's no commandment on how much we should or should not be involved in government, politics, institutions. We just don't find that commandment either to say, thou shalt or thou shalt not. But you do have priorities that the Bible lays down. You have commands on where our hope is to lie. And then you have commands on how we are to care for other people. And if we're faithful to these things, then we can work out our own individual and church involvement in these matters in ways that are going to probably differ based on the factors and the opportunities we have in our own personal lives. But they're going to be driven by Scripture and what Scripture prioritizes. So you're saying, how does what I'm doing here in this political sphere impact whether people are going to listen to me about the gospel? How does what I'm doing in this leave time for what I need to do in terms of gospel ministry? How does doing good to this person express a changed heart on my part? Um, how does doing good to this person, does it silence or give me the opportunity to be able to preach the gospel to them? How does living in this way or, or spending time in this institution give me time or not to do this? And we're not going to know those things flawlessly either. We can't necessarily even predict how our actions are going to impact that or the outcome that they're going to have. What seems like a good opportunity may turn out to be a bad one and what seems like a bad one might turn out to be good but the point is that's what we're thinking we're thinking in terms of wisdom what does God want for us to do what does he want us to prioritize what has he promised and not promised and then we put all that kind of in a blender and we say how do we apply this in our own personal lives and so we don't have escapism and we don't have radical cultural transformationism, but we say, what do we need to do that is wisest to carry out the priorities that God has laid down for us? And we think about everything from that perspective. All right, well, there's going to be more to come. Uh, I'm sure you have some questions. Feel free to ask me, but I need to let you go. I've already gone over. Uh, let me pray for us, and we will close. God, thank you for this, uh, this truth that you've given us about the future so that we can have hope, and so we pray that we would respond to the hope of Christ's return and all of his promises that he will fulfill uh, with faithfulness. Help us to respond with faithfulness 
to that and help us to respond with conviction, with activity that honors you and with priorities that are wise. We pray that you would help us to do everything that you have told us to do in the Bible and to be, uh, to be growing in our insight and our wisdom and knowledge about how to do that. We pray that you would help us to see the fruit of our labor and we pray that you would give us the grace to serve you faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.